Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Friday, October 16th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. We'll talk to the mayor about the recent increase in COVID-19 cases in the city and the extension of patio season for restaurants and pubs as we move closer to winter. Next is not an easy task for parents. How do you keep your kids calm when they have to take a coronavirus test? We get some tips from a child psychologist. Then it was billed as the dueling TV town halls. We get a debrief of President Donald Trump's and Joe Biden's televised town halls Thursday night from Jackson Prosco, Global's Washington bureau chief. And finally, he's our man on the road, quite literally. Our Dave McIver gives us his first impression of the newest stretch of Calgary's ring road, Sutina Trail. 812 on the morning news on Fridays. We have the pleasure of doing a check-in with the mayor to talk about topics of interest to Calgarians. Lots of ground to cover today, so we say good Friday morning to Mayor Nahed Nenshi. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, friends. No, I do not have my snow tires on was, yet. I'm a little grumpy <laughs> about that. The main focus. Join the club. Of our, uh, <laughs> we, we're going to get to, uh, you know, the outdoor patios because now we have a reason to talk about it with the weather on the way. But, of course, we wouldn't be talking about winter outdoor patios if it wasn't for the the pandemic. So I'm wondering your thoughts, because it seems like every day or so uh, when we have the numbers, Calgary's teetering on that watch list. Numbers are going up. Uh, was this expected? Is this something you expected? Or are you seeing an increase that you're not happy with? Uh, certainly we expected it, and certainly I'm not happy with it. Uh, the troubling thing this week is that we've also seen an increase in hospitalizations. Now, we have to remind everyone that because we worked so hard in the spring to flatten the curve, we still have plenty of capacity in the healthcare system, but exponential growth is exponential growth. And so as these things start to grow, that capacity will disappear quite quickly. So we've been lucky that although we've been seeing growth, it hasn't really been exponential. We've been managing to, you know, keep ourselves at a certain level uh, and with only small increases in the number of new cases per day. Uh, it also seems that because it's spreading more in younger populations, there are fewer as a percentage, um, sort of very difficult cases. But, you know, we did have someone in their 30s die uh, this week as well. So everyone's still got to remain careful. And I know I just say the same thing every week, but it really matters. you got to wash your hands, cover your cough, wear your mask, keep your physical distance, um, because ultimately that, they sound like small things, but that's really what's going to keep this thing under control. Merit oh, this- and oh, yep. get your flu shot. Yes. Nothing to do with coronavirus, but let's keep the flu patients outside of the hospitals as well. On that note, Mayor, um, you know, we're getting our flu shots on Monday, by the way, if you want to pop by and join us. Andrew? Uh, you know, I might. I always do it on camera. Yeah. Um, Every year, and I haven't set it up for next week yet, so who knows, I may join you. Well, Monday, you're welcome to come in and get a shot with us. Andrew cried a little bit last year. We're going to see if he, uh, maybe you could hold his hand this time around. I'm happy to do so. I'll get you a fancy (laughs) X-Men bag. I I want a sucker, too. Uh, Mayor, is there any concern at this point, as we see the numbers slowly climbing, uh, that we revert and step backwards, or is that not even a a topic of discussion at this point with the numbers we have? Listen, that's always a concern, Uh, and, and it's not far away right? Because as I said last week, we're not doing anything differently, particularly than they were doing in Ontario and Quebec uh, before they had to step back and close the restaurants for uh, in restaurant dining and so on. Nobody wants that. I don't want that. And so I'm hoping that uh, we will not get to that point. 
Okay, let's talk about, you know, wanting to be outside still, but it's getting colder. The outdoor patios, something you were encouraging, I think, months ago, uh, you know, on this program to kind of winterize the patios if you can. We're hearing from some establishments that there may be some red tape that they're having a a hard time getting a patio like they'd like to see. Um, Is this something that you're working with business owners uh, toward having as it gets colder? Yeah, very, very much so. We're making this as easy as possible. Uh, The challenge that we've got is that, some of those expanded patios that we enjoyed so much over the summer that spilled out onto the sidewalk and then have the people walk on the road. Um, once it starts snowing, unfortunately, we have to get rid of those because we need a place to pile the snow. Um, so, But we're still trying to make it easy for people to winterize. I myself have sat on two or three nicely winterized patios over the last little while. But I want to encourage Calgarians to actually do it, um, you know, on Sunday I went out for lunch. It was plus 13. Uh, I sat on a beautiful patio that had two fireplaces that was completely enclosed. I was the only one on there. It was totally (laughs) packed inside the restaurant. Um, So we should give those restaurant owners a little encouragement that these are things we're willing to do. Probably not this Sunday when it's going to be really cold, but, you know, on uh, most fall and winter days in Calgary, it's perfectly pleasant to sit outside for a little while. We're hardy Canadians. We can handle it. Uh, something that uh, was uh, very much in the news and has been, it seems like on again, off again for months, is Ward 2 Councillor Joe Maglioka and expenses. We've heard from listeners that the councillor should be fired, but you'd indicated, um, you know, in other media reports in the past week or so, that it's not that easy and it's it's not up to council. So can you break uh, down how, how something like this works? You, you mentioned that we yeah. might have to wait to another election. Yeah, I sure can. So we have a code of conduct that we all sign off on um, and that we're all expected to abide by. And as a matter of fact, when Joe's uh, expense irregularities popped up, we actually also did an audit of everyone else's expenses, um, and there were no problems. Nobody else had any issues with um, hitting their, uh, their following their policy. But there was a real pattern of not good behavior from Councillor Magliota, very bad behavior, as a matter of fact. And so Council has assessed probably the strictest... Uh, the strictest uh, sanctions that we can, um, but because he's not really an employee, he's an elected official, there's not much more we can do uh, in terms of the law. And really, it's up to citizens, uh, particularly those that he represents, to tell them how they feel um, about whether he should step down now. Um, but certainly, uh, the ultimate say, of course, comes in an election, which is a year from uh, this weekend. I should point out that this is not the first time. Uh, usually, when the integrity commissioner gives you a sanction, you just take it. I even had to apologize once, and so I did. But even Councillor Jeremy Farkas also was told to apologize by the integrity commissioner and refused to do so. Um, so this really is not a great loophole, but if you've got a code of conduct, it really ought to have some teeth. Now, Mayor, on a related question from a listener, um, you know, and I'm wondering then, has have things changed on this front in terms of expense accounts? Because the listener's asking, who signs off on council expense accounts that things like this, you know, get through? And, and has that system changed at all? Yeah, it's a bit of a... I wouldn't say it's an honor system, but right now there is a committee of the councillors that signs off on the councillors' expenses. Um, Not for me. My expenses are signed off on by the city CFO, so there's a little more rigor there. And uh, one of the things that came up is, you know, every other councillor actually follows the rules, but maybe we need some more belts and braces on this. So there is a group trying to come up with a new recommendation 
for how to deal with counselors' expenses, and that recommendation should be with us before year's end. Good. Good stuff. Thanks for your time this morning, Mayor. We appreciate it. Thanks very much. Hey, you know something? It's my birthday this weekend. Is not it? birthday anniversary. Your anniversary? Um, yes. On Sunday will be 10 years, if you can believe us, uh, as the mayor. And so I'm hoping next week, uh, over the course of the week, we'll have an opportunity to talk about all 10 years and kind of where the city has gone uh, over the course of that time. I think it's a good opportunity for us to take a long view. So hopefully we can have a chat about that, too. Well, congratulations. Ten years. That is something else. So that you're, does that mean you're going to run again in the next election just to keep that going? Or Well, you have to ask me that every week, uh, right? It's a rule. It um, really is. I really should have a decision by now. I usually decide about a year before the next election, but it's been too darn busy. So hopefully I'll have some time to really make that decision over the upcoming weeks. Next week, Mayor. Next week. Next week. <laughs> have a great weekend, everyone. And please stay safe uh, as we get this first blast of winter weather. You bet. Thank you so much. That is Mayor Nahed Nenchi. With schools and daycares requiring negative test results before allowing sick kids back, many young children will need to have a COVID-19 test. It's a test that even adults dread. With tips on how to make this easier for the little ones in your life, we're joined this morning by University of Guelph psychology professor Megan McMurtry. Good morning, Megan. Good morning. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I don't know. Is there really anything that can make this test more bearable or does it come down to mind over matter perhaps? Well, you know, I think it's a great question. And actually, we're looking uh, at decades of research that really helped us to understand how to make painful and kind of distressing medical procedures more comfortable for children. And so there actually is lots of things that we can do and they may be easier than you think. Um, So I do think that there's some promise. Yes. So you've teamed up with a a U of C, um, you know, a a professor as well. So what are some of those things as far as perhaps even approaching the the conversations with your children before you go and get the test? Absolutely. So Dr. Bernie and I uh, wrote a recent commentary based on this literature and the research, and and we really go through what to do um, as parents to help make these more comfortable. So I think basically um, before the procedure, children need to know what will happen, sort of who, what, when, where, why, and how it will feel. This has to be, of course, developmentally appropriate for the child, um, so parents will know best what their children can understand, but don't try to kind of hide the truth because children often kind of fill in the details with things that might actually be worse than reality. So we want to make sure that they have appropriate expectations. But we can't stop there. Also before the procedure, once you've talked about what's going to happen, uh, it's important to make a coping plan that fits um, for your child, right? So it's not just about what's going to happen. Here's how we're going to make it more comfortable for you as a kid. And what can the kids do to make it more comfortable? And so on the day of the procedure, um, it's really important that if you're going to be waiting uh, for a long time, and that does happen, at some of the testing centers, that there's some sort of distraction while you wait. We don't want to make the waiting period, you know, more difficult than it needs to be. So that's the time where if you have a TV show that you can download, you know, on a tablet or a phone or a special video game that can be played, music to be listened to, special book, those kinds of things, um, that would be really great to do while you wait. Um, then during the swab, um, you're going to want to have what we call comfort positioning. So what that means is that for young kids, they can sit on their parents' lap, so they can either sit with their back to the parent's chest or sort of sideways on the parent's um, lap, and the parent can just sort of gently wrap their arms around them 
like in a big hug. Um, this helps the child feel safe and it isn't like restraint or holding them down, which would be really bad. We don't want that. Um, the child can be asked to look up, to take deep breaths, and the child can count and the parent can count with them to know, you know, that it will end and it's not going to last forever. And it may help also to close their eyes um, because when that swab is up there, I don't know about you, but for me, my eyes really water mm. um, when that swab is up there. And so I think that can also be helpful for kids. After the procedure, it's really important to talk about what the child did well. What did they put in place from their coping plan that worked well? Did they take those deep breaths? Did they maybe have a coping statement like, I'm brave, I can be Superman, that seemed to work for them? This allows them to kind of focus on what they did well and the positives or at least neutral parts of the procedure, which may help them be more prepared in the future to get it again. I know with my own child after medical procedures, I sometimes film it um, on my phone. I do a little interview with him afterwards where I say, you know, what really helps with you? And, you know, what, how did it feel? And right after the procedure, as long as it's gone pretty well, he can give a pretty accurate response that then can help set him up the next time so that he's not kind of catastrophizing and thinking it was much worse than it was. I love all those ideas. So good. Just really kind of keeping things calm, speaking in neutral language so that we don't scare them beforehand. I'm a little bit scared to ask you about this as a psychology <laughs> professor, how you feel about uh, in my house, you know, bribery will get you everywhere. So is, <laughs> is it okay to maybe, you know, use that as something afterwards too? Hey, we've got to get through this, but there's something good at the end. I think that is absolutely fine at this point. Um, and so, you know, you're calling it bribery. I think it's also a reward for good effort, right? And getting through something that might be hard mm -hmm. is how I would also think about it. And I know, you know, we have some data from my lab that suggests that children really um, value having kind of a reward after medical procedures. And so absolutely, I think that makes sense. Oh, phew. Megan, you mentioned. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. You mentioned the transparency, and, and we want to be as transparent, age appropriate as possible, as you mentioned. But here in Alberta with the AHS, the issue is uh, you don't know if you're going to get the throat swab or the mm. nose uh, test. So, what do we say to our children? Because they know there's two tests. They've talked with their friends about this. When they say, "Which test am I going to get?" and you, as a parent, aren't sure, and you won't know either until you get to the testing site. So, how do you ease that fear? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. So, I would be considering um, talking to them about that there are these two options, and that you know, even I, as mommy, I don't know actually which one we're going to get. But let's make a plan for both of them. Maybe you write down on a little card or, you know, in your phone what the plan is for each one. And so that you have something in place, no matter what you're kind of greeted with, right? Because the truth is, you don't want to say, oh, you're definitely getting the throat swab when you don't know that. Mm -hmm. Because then what is the child going to do if suddenly um, then the nose swab kind of is, is emerging, right? So we don't want to lose credibility as parents. We want to be honest and we want to plan for how we're going to cope. Um, with the procedure. Megan, I'm curious as if you've looked back at, you know, other ways that kids have been tested in hospital, for example. I mean, this is the, the least of, of most parents' worries, right, when there's something wrong with your kid and a lot of this testing needs to be done. So did you kind of look back and see, uh, you know, different methods that worked for kids for other procedures that were being done too? 
Yeah, absolutely. So this research, this um, sorry, these recommendations are really based on research that more focuses on needles and other painful medical procedures, and there's decades of literature on this. So it's all it's very consistent what we find. Um, so again, distraction during the procedure um, when you can, being uh, informing them what's going to happen in kind of a neutral way. Another thing that's really important is to actually not to be overly reassuring during the procedure, not to keep repetitive saying, it's okay, you'll be fine, don't worry, because actually children think their parents are scared when they do that. So it's better to distract. You can still say, it's okay, but then move on to something else. Take those deep breaths, look at that poster over there on the wall if they have their eyes open, and so on. So this is really consistent um, with what we know helps with needle procedures. And let's be honest, we need to uh, make sure that parents and kids are coming for their vaccines as well, right? Um, And so these kinds of tips can be helpful for that too. Some great tips. Thank you so much for your time, Megan. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to speak with you. That's Megan McCurdy, University of Guelph psychology professor. Dueling town hall meetings last night, uh, you know, same time, different networks. So how did they go? How did the presidential candidates fare? Joining us, and he is on the road, coming back from a rally in North Carolina, is Global's Washington Bureau Chief Jackson Prosco. Morning, Jackson. Good morning. Happy Friday. Well, happy Friday to you. Was it a happy Thursday for either candidate last night? Boy, they seem to be really uh, just really uh, polar opposites in how both candidates dealt with their questions last night. Didn't it seem to you? Yeah, it sort of would be like adjusting your car radio and listening to Metallica and then flipping (laughs) over to classical music right after, right? I mean, like just two totally Mm -hmm. opposite worlds. Um, I think what stands out is that President Trump, in many ways, the way he talks, it's not like he's the incumbent. I mean, he's talking more like somebody who's on the defense and is, is running as an outsider and in many ways running against his own record. And he faced questions about things like healthcare proposals. And time and time again, he was asked, You've been in power for four years. Republicans have had the majority in Congress. Why haven't you dealt with these measures? Why are you still punting this to after the election? And Joe Biden is, you know, very calm, almost sedate, maybe too sedate for some voters. Uh, But really, I think this sort of just gives you a sense of of two very different styles from two very different candidates. Mm -hmm. Different styles. And there was uh, some mention of perhaps more fact checking during uh, these town halls compared to the debates. Uh, do we know about any of the fact uh, fact checking results? Uh, you know, I think it's one of those things where obviously the president is going to face more questions and more scrutiny. He'll tell you that's an attack, but the fact of the matter is he's running on his record. That's what happens when you're the incumbent. So, of course, you're going to face scrutiny over that. Joe Biden, really, it's more about the questions he won't answer. And, and the one that sort of is hanging over him is this question of, will he pack the courts and expand the size of the Supreme Court if he's president? And he's refusing to answer that. And he's saying, look, I don't want to do that because then that answer becomes the story. Let's get through the confirmation process for that vacant uh, Supreme Court seat right now, and then I'll answer the question after that when we know what's going to happen. Jackson, I wanted to talk to you because, we, you know, as we talk about the, the two, you know, polar opposites of how they performed last night, and we just spoke earlier about how Trump seemed quite angry last night, and we got a few texters saying the moderator really kept interrupting Donald Trump, and that didn't help, and that was why he was likely angry. Your thoughts on that, and did the moderator get in the way last night? 
You know, I actually think it was an interesting format in the sense that Trump usually speaks uninterrupted. And in fact, he's the one who typically does the interrupting uh, and then goes off on these tangents that are often not rooted in fact or reality. And I think the moderator uh, did her job last night, Savannah Guthrie, in the sense of keeping him on track and holding him to account. And again, when you're the incumbent, you are running on your record. Uh, you are, you know, you face that sort of scrutiny. And, and among the questions the president struggled to answer was, did you have a COVID test before the last debate where you were supposed to have before debating Joe Biden? And eventually, as she continued to precedent, he admitted that no, he hadn't been tested that day, which he was supposed to have. And no, he was not being tested every day, which he has claimed repeatedly. So that's why you want a journalist pressing and, and asking those questions and trying to get an answer. Joe Biden was pressed equally on that Supreme Court question I just mentioned. Dueling town halls, uh, I'm not sure what the American people would have got from it because you had to choose one signal you were going to watch. Uh, this was in place of what was supposed to be the debate last night. All eyes on the 22nd, that's supposed to be the final debate. What do we know about that? Is it going to be going ahead? As of right now, it's supposed to be going ahead, and it's supposed to be the same format as the very first debate, just the two candidates one-on-one -on -one with uh, uh, the moderator, NBC's uh, Kristen Welker, uh, uh, moder moderating that event. Uh, so it's worth pointing out that the debate that did not go ahead was supposed to be a town hall format, which I guess explains how we ended up with last night's two separate town halls. And does it look like in the polls, you know, I guess it's too, too soon to tell from last night's, you know, um, they can't call them debates, town hall meetings. Does it look like that might sway things in any way, shape or form, or, or is Biden still well out in front? Yeah, I mean, Biden is still well out in front, and there are still a lot of questions about what that means in reality. You know, his lead is, has been remarkably consistent at sort of eight to 10 points. And I think two things you have to remember here. One is that, yes, election day is November 3rd, but the election is already ongoing. And in fact, uh, just left a polling station here in North Carolina where there are long, long lines for early voting. And it's like that in state after state. So people are locking in their choices now, and they're doing it en masse in massive, massive, unprecedented numbers. The second thing, though, is that we don't know how this is going to play out come election day in terms of who actually gets out to vote by the time all the votes are counted, whose votes are counted, and really what the impact of things like the pandemic, of voter suppression, of voter registration, how that actually factors out uh, into, into results on election day and, and the overall result. As you mentioned, uh, you know, as uh, who brought you in, mentioned you were on the road coming back from North Carolina from that huge Trump rally yesterday. The pictures, it looked like it was very well attended. What can you tell us about uh, Donald Trump's rally yesterday? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing to keep in mind here is this was another one of these rallies where everyone's packed shoulder to shoulder, very few people wearing masks. And it came on a date at which uh, North Carolina set a record for all time highest COVID infection rates. Uh, so that's the context here. And the day before, the president had been in Iowa, which had set an all time record. This weekend, he's going to Wisconsin for one of these rallies where they are setting daily all time records. They're running out of hospital beds. So really, these rallies are coming in defiance of the pandemic. And again, we talk about stark contrast between the Trump and Biden campaign. Kamala Harris was supposed to have been here in North Carolina yesterday as well. She canceled her events out of, out of an abundance of caution after two members of the flight crew on the plane she travels with tested positive for COVID-19. She wasn't directly exposed to them, but she has canceled her events for the rest of the week purely out of precaution, whereas the president is pushing ahead. And when you talk to his supporters at these events, they say, hey, the pandemic is no big deal. You know, take the risk. Uh, it, it's There's nothing to be afraid of. Jackson, you know, when you're out on the road and you're in the crowds and you're talking to Americans, what's the sense that you're getting? Are people are people really kind of 
you know, finding this is this election is, is going to be the important one that, that we seem to think that it will be? Yeah, I think there is a sense. I think that, uh, you know, the people you hear most often from are the people who are firmly entrenched on either side. And, and so there's always this question about the, the kind of quieter voters, uh, people who maybe don't want to proclaim who they're voting for, but have made up their minds and are, are going to lean one way or the other. Uh, I think everybody gets a sense of just how important this is. And that's why it, there are uh, such huge lines and such a huge rush to the polls for the early voting. And really, I think there's a lot of concern about how voting is going to unfold. But I have to tell you, talking to Trump supporters yesterday, there was a general sense that if Biden wins, they will accept the result. They'll move on. It'll be disappointing. But, uh, you know, it's not perhaps ever talked about so much over the past few months. People generally accept the idea that it's an election. Someone will win and someone will mm -hmm. lose. And they may not be happy about the results, but they'll accept them. Oh, less than uh, three weeks away now for the big day. Thanks for your time this morning, Jackson. Have a great day. That's Jackson Prosco, Global's Washington Bureau Chief. 8.43 on the morning news. It's the newest road in the city, Sutina Trail, the latest portion of Calgary's Ring Road. Have you had the chance to drive down the trail? Well, we discovered our Dave McIver has yet to travel down the new stretch, so we thought we'd send him out and give it a go this morning. Uh, Dave, uh, first impressions are everything. Tell us your initial thoughts of Sutina. First impression, impressed. Mm. Uh, this thing is unbelievable. As a 32-year as a Calgarian, uh, someone who lived in Woodlands for you know 25 years of my life, um, this thing's this thing's crazy. My 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 very first impression. Now I came down 37th Street, got onto Sarcy Trail West, and found uh, Stony Trail and and Satina Trail. Um, and just as soon as you get on there, your first sign is for 90th Ave and Southland Drive. And it's a minute and four kilometers away, or 1.4 kilometers rather, away from um, Glenmore and Star Sea. So you're like, what is usually a 20 minute drive from, you know, let's say, well, Brayside, Woodlands, Woodbine, Cedar Bray, Oak Ridge to get to, let's say, West Hills, that's like five minutes to get you from, you know, let's say you're coming up uh, 90th Avenue or Southland Drive, and you're, you know, 1.5 kilometers away. So I was blown away by how close everything is. Um, once you get off of Sarcy and Glenmore onto uh, Satina Trail, you're only four kilometers away from, from Anderson Road and Buffalo Road Boulevard. So um, that's been the biggest thing for me. I, just, I, I could not believe how close this has made everything in the Southwest. So Dave, I live up in the North, so I wouldn't normally travel this stretch, though I will make an effort to drive down there just to drive it because <laughs> I love checking out new roads and when they're all paved beautifully. So this thing, it goes from Glenmore down to just sort of south of Fish Creek then and does not yet go to 22X, correct? No. So basically what happens is it goes to Fish Creek Boulevard. The road closes there. You have to get off on Fish Creek Boulevard and 146th Ave. Now, 146th Ave, you would take that right. That will take you out to 22X. And that can get you out of the city. It can get you to uh, even, you know, kind of the southeast part of the city there. And then you look at Fish Creek Boulevard. That takes you into Evergreen. And you can kind of work your way back into uh, Sundance and Shaughnessy and those areas. So it, it's just crazy how, how close everything is. And because it's so new, what shocked me was the connection to some very old and existing roads like Southland Drive. Have you had the chance to, to get to the connector? It's, it's crazy. 
It is. It's like you're driving through a forest. It, it was like, you know, I've, I've always seen that. I went to uh, junior high at St. Cyril uh, Junior High right around there. And, uh, you know, there's there used to just be a green space when you got to the end of Southland Drive. That's gone. You're straight through out to Sutina Trail. And it's a pretty neat little drive. I'd love to do it at night with the lights. And you're just surrounded by forest, something that you don't see a lot of on Calgary Street. Dave, I think the really the key here and the most important question probably overall, and it doesn't relate to cost or anything, it's how do we get to the new Costco? Does it, <laughs> does it get you there faster? Your key is Buffalo Run Boulevard. So if you're coming from the north side, you're going south on Sutina Trail, Anderson Road, Buffalo Run Boulevard, they are the same, uh, they're the same sign. Uh, you're heading up, uh, you know, heading south. You turn right on Buffalo Run Boulevard, just stay on it. It takes you right to the Costco. If you're coming from the south, you're heading north, you've got a couple of options. You can come off uh, 130th Ave and get you to Costco and also Anderson Road and uh, Buffalo Run Boulevard. So uh, lots of options to get to the Costco, Sue. I know you'll be there. Oh, that's so fun. I, you know, I've never <laughs> been so excited, and like you say, how close everything is, but... Uh, eye-opening and it's good to hear your first-hand account from being a first-timer thanks uh, so much dave we're going to call you driving dave mccarthy <laughs> our <laughs> we'll roving reporter <laughs> all right see you guys